Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Caring for children brings their special needs, personalities, and vulnerability to the forefront. Pediatrics, information for all ages. Tonight, on Call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening, and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. Children have a way of capturing our hearts. We love to see them smile and hear their laughs. For their health and safety, we all need to be aware of the most current science regarding their care. Let's begin with a look at this week's Prairie Dot quiz question. It's a true or false tonight. Co-sleeping, having the child share the parent's bed, has been going on for centuries and is the safest way for infants to sleep. True or false? Viewers who call in the correct answer will be entered into a drawing to win a signed copy of the book, The Picture of Health. Each of Dr. Holmes' essays, originally written for On Call with the Prairie Doc, comes with a wonderful accompanying photograph by Dr. Judith Peterson. We will announce the answer and the winner at the end of the show. Remember, you only have 10 minutes to get your answer in. We answer your questions about pediatrics as they are called in or sent to us via Facebook or email. Call in questions to 1-888-376-6225 or send us an email to the address on the screen. Joining us in the studio tonight is Dr. Matthew Bean, a pediatrics and internal medicine physician with Avera Medical Group Brookings. And joining us via Zoom is Dr. Joseph Vogel, a pediatrician with Avera Medical Group, Sioux Falls. Welcome, gentlemen. I really appreciate having you both in the studio with us tonight. Matt, let's start with you. Can you uh, give our viewers just a little bit of background on, on you? Yeah, so I grew up in South Dakota and trained here in, at USD, then went off to Wisconsin for a few years and back to Brookings now for 20 years, just at this past June. So I practice primary care, both pediatrics and internal medicine, so very much uh, enjoy taking care of children. Fabulous. And Joe, can you give us a little bit of information about you and your background? Sure. I grew up in Colton, went to SDSU for undergrad, and then down to USD, similar to Matt, for medical school. And then residency was in Omaha, for, and I did a pediatrics residency. So my practice in Sioux Falls entails seeing kids zero to 18. Okay. Now, were you at Creighton or at the University of Nebraska, or am I missing one of the programs there? No, they have a combined program, oh, UNMC okay. and Creighton okay. joined together. And there's the Children's Hospital, too. Okay, excellent. And uh, how long have you been in Sioux Falls then? My first job was in Minnesota, practiced there for 12 years, and then since both my wife and I are from the area, we moved back closer to home about eight, nine years ago. Okay. So you two were classmates. Do I understand that correctly? That's right. All right. That's right. Well, wonderful. So that's, 
that's how Matt was able to convince you that you needed to come and do this with us and help us out. So I appreciate it very much. So um, what have you guys been seeing here lately in, in the clinic? Uh, Matt, I'll start with you. Well, I think every sniffle is COVID these days. So anybody that calls in wondering about what to do next, it seems like COVID is always in the conversation. So, um, but really, I think we're back to seeing a lot of our own patients and a lot of the things that we see them for, whether it's during the pandemic or not. So fortunately, um, my clinic practice, aside from the extra masks and equipment we're wearing, um, is pretty much like it had been pre-pandemic. Um, that's pretty much where we're at these days. Joe, how about you? Is, uh, what kind of changes have you seen with the pandemic? During the summer, we, you know, early on we slowed down and now we're uh, back to seeing, getting the kids in and keeping the immunizations up. Once school has started, starting to see a few more uh, general colds, illnesses coming in, um, but still the majority of what I see is well checks, but uh, the illnesses and sniffles are, are certainly coming and trying to decide through that and what's, what needs testing and what doesn't. Yeah, I think that's a very difficult question for all of us and certainly difficult for parents and difficult for schools and, you know, just difficult for everybody. Is this something that is potentially dangerous or is this something that we wouldn't have even thought twice about a year ago. We're thinking a lot harder about a lot of things now. Mm -hmm. So that's difficult. I think one of the big concerns that I have with COVID is just the unknowns. You know, we, we seem to understand that most kids have a mild disease and, and aren't gonna get real sick. And obviously there's um, exceptions, but my big question and that I think we don't have the answer to is, is this going to be something like polio where somebody who apparently recovers without incident is going to have side effects on down the road and damage and health problems 10 and 20 and 30 years later. So, yeah. I think that's all yet to be determined. Yeah, exactly. Of course, we can't know what's going to happen in 30 years. We Nobody had this disease 30 years ago. So um, would one of you kind of speak maybe to some of the evidence that we're seeing, some of the information we're getting about some of the, the cardiac impacts that we see in young athletes? Have either of you been following that concern? Yeah, I think with any viral infection, there's always a chance that there's inflammation in the heart as a result of that viral infection, so a myositis or a muscle inflammation in the heart. I haven't seen a lot of the specifics in athletes, or at least what you're referring to yet, but I can imagine just like with the other viral infections, that's always a potential complication. Fortunately rare, but if it's there, it does put that patient at more risk for a heart rhythm problem or some other problem down the road too. So um, certainly this virus has been more of a vascular virus than some of the other coronaviruses it seems like. So I think that's certainly uh, something that we need to consider. Yeah. Not everyone will need to be screened for that. That'll be the question for the athlete that gets COVID, you know, what um, the high school or uh, middle school athlete that uh, is infected. Um, most of them won't need screening from a, from a cardiac standpoint. Uh, and if their disease or illness is mild enough, but if it seems like it takes a, a harder course or a more uh, dramatic course in that individual, then that may be one tool to screen from a cardiac standpoint. Screening can be a heart ultrasound if needed. 
I've, I've heard a lot of talk about EKGs too as a potential screening and, and certainly some of it too depends on the intensity and the age of the athlete. I know that uh, kids 15 and older, they're talking a lot more about treating like adults in terms of uh, what kind of cardiac screening they need to have going forward. So, um, and how about flu shots? Are you gentlemen starting to give flu shots in your clinics as of yet? Are you recommending we waiting have. a little, are you? Yeah, this last week we did start. It's nice to have that available for the families that come in so they don't have to make an, an additional trip. But yes, yeah, we're starting to, uh, in particular, the kids that are coming in for the well checks, discussing that and adding that on. Up until this week, I had been telling patients to maybe hold off till later in September, but we're pretty much later in September, September. so I think it's time. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always traditionally kind of aimed for uh, Halloween for the flu shot, but I'm aiming a little earlier this season, kind of maybe early October is, has been my goal, but as you say, we're kind of at that point where it's time to start. And I, I think it's really important to point out how important the flu shot is every year. I think we've all known otherwise healthy young children who've died from influenza and obviously older people too. So uh, this season in particular, it's going to be really important. Yeah, I think influenza for children is probably going to be more severe than the COVID. Absolutely. Uh, is. But again, we just don't know the implications of the COVID virus yep. at this point. Yep, I totally agree. So. Um, how behind would you say that you are in terms of well child checks and everything with the world having shut down for a few months? Matt? Yeah, I think probably March, April, uh, we definitely got behind um, and played catch up most of the summer. But I feel like in my practice now, we're probably getting people back in on time and, and pretty much caught up for me personally. I don't know. How about you, Joe? Still seeing some kids that, you know, they'll come in for their one year check and miss, and they can see that they missed the nine month, but we're getting caught up uh, that way. And you can see just in the follow up visits what we did miss during that period of time. Yeah. I think one of the big concerns that I have right now with COVID and the pandemic is kind of making sure that, that kids are getting the developmental stimulation that they need with everything being so an upheaval in school and a lot of kids, you know, remote learning. Do you guys have any tips for parents on how to support that aspect of their child's life? Definitely an impact for the amount of, you know, it's, it's been hard to see with the, the you know, not being able to see grandparents as much as the comments I get in the, in the, in the office and the interaction, you know, that's, and tough decisions too with that. You know, each family has to make a decision how much exposure and how much uh, interaction are we going to, to get. So have that we're having that conversation on a daily basis and, you know, tips for interactions uh, range from you know connecting like we like I am here, to, which isn't always as useful as in person. Uh, you know, still using some masks and still uh, good hand washing when you do interact, um, but engaging as when you can and and uh, and inviting conversation with grandparents and interacting. That's still a, a key in the child's life and, and huge. 
and it can be as simple as a phone call or an interaction that way. Yeah, I think that's really hard for a lot of families. Everybody has a kind of a different risk acceptance and a different um, risk factors. So my grandparent who may have uh, heart disease and, and asthma and be 80 years old is different from a healthy 50-year-old person. So that's a challenge for a lot of families. So anything to add there, Matt? Yeah, I think, I mean, just it's one thing to be within your own family and have that small circle of three or five or whatever it is, but I think people can safely, with practicing using masks and good hand hygiene, expand that circle to involve grandparents and things too. So uh, I think we're learning more about how we can protect ourselves and, and, and beyond just the video conferencing and things like that, I think there is opportunity for in-person uh, interaction with our grandparents. But just expanding that circle, that bubble a little bit bigger um, and taking precautions uh, would allow that. Yeah, those precautions are really important. So. We have a question here. A rapid city man is wondering if a person with COVID is capable of spreading the disease before they begin showing symptoms. Matt, I'm going to throw that to you. Well, I'll, I'll answer it short with the short answer of yes. Uh, the question is probably how long before um, and how much they're shedding when they're asymptomatic. And I think it varies from person to person. It probably varies depending on how many times they've had other coronaviruses or other viruses that are similar. But I would say probably three to five days before they're symptomatic, they could be shedding that virus quite easily. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's one of those things that we don't have as much information about in terms of when do they start, but we absolutely know that asymptomatic people, either people who never have much for symptoms or people whose symptoms just haven't started yet, we know that those people can shed virus. That's why it's really important that we all take these precautions so that we don't spread it unwittingly to other people who may be vulnerable. So um, here, this is a, a great question that kind of builds on some of the other things that we've been talking about. A woman from Lenox is wondering if doctors are seeing more depression in school-age kids due to COVID. Joe, what are you seeing? I think there's more mood disturbance, yes. I think um, also, um, so the ability to get out and interact and, and entails physical and, and emotional health. So the emotional impact is there. I, yes, I would say uh, for sure. Also to build on that, um, physical health has impacted. I think some seeing a little bit higher increases in weight and with, with less routine in, in a child's life. Uh, more staying at home, uh, that was an impact also. But emotional uh, health has, has taken, taken a, uh, a toll. I really seem to be seeing almost more anxiety than depression uh, in my patient population in general, but particularly in the kids. I think, you know, they worry about this too. They worry about the people that they love and uh, are they going to get sick and are they going to bring it to somebody else? So how about you, Matt? What are you yeah, saying? I, no question. I think that we think about ways to treat depression or treat anxiety and there's medication, but I think a lot of ways that uh, our children and, our, and the adults deal with that is, is social interaction. And, and without that, 
they, they aren't being treated for their depression or their anxiety. There's no outlet for it. So no question, I think I've seen an increase uh, over the past few months in, in my patients that are struggling without that opportunity to, to get together with friends and do their sports or their social activities that they were used to doing, and that was kind of their outlet for them. Yeah, and I think it's pretty clear that exercise is a very important component of treating mood disorders. Um, so when children and adults don't have that opportunity to go out and um, be as active and be as active in a team setting, uh, that really impacts their moods. So, and not having that opportunity to have a caring adult, a teacher uh, who maybe is a couple steps outside of that immediate family, uh, able to kind of say, hey, you know, something's not quite right here. That's another impact for those kids. And having access to the school counselors or not having as good of access to the school counselors is certainly a, a factor for a lot of kids. In the younger age population too, with the the uh, preschool and, and early, um, you know, that five to eight, more acting out, more, more complaints of their tummy or worrying at bedtime, more complaints that take longer to, to have children transition to bedtime, seeing it in different symptoms that way too. Yeah. Um, it's a high volume of, of uh, COVID, the conversation is there a lot. Uh, it's it's on TV, it's it's around, it takes up parents' conversations and kids pick up on that. They pick up on, the, on their parents' mood, they pick up on what's what's going on that way. So shutting the shutting the TV down early, uh, turning off that, that screen time, having that time, particularly at bedtime, that's an awesome time to hear your child's complaints or concerns that it just pours out at, at bed when when their mind slows down enough to just let let you know about it so that's a good listening time frame i think you know that's an important uh, thing just in general for parents to realize is that a lot of those young children not only can they not really articulate what they're feeling and what they're thinking about um, but they don't necessarily recognize it themselves that this is what's bothering me so uh, i'll frequently see that in you know, preschool age, kindergarten age, when a new sibling comes into the family or there's some other major change, that child will regress in their behaviors and parents will be, well, you know, we, we were so successful with potty training and now we're having accidents again or those kinds of, of issues. And I think it's really important for parents and grandparents and all the adults in this child's life to realize the child is not deliberately trying to be naughty. You know, they're, they're not doing this just to, to bother you. They're not acting out on purpose. They're trying to express their own distress without having the words to do it or the insight to really realize what's going on. So we have to be detectives when we're dealing with children. And that's a normal developmental thing. I think it's really important for, for parents and adults to realize that, you know, that child doesn't have that insight and understanding that you do. So, uh, any any other thoughts with that? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, every parent goes through the process of their children's teething, and this can be different for every child.
Joni Holm explains some key tips and tricks for parents going through this important time with this episode from the Play, Eat, Sleep educational series. Our topic today is teething. Everybody goes through teething, so it's something that parents uh, are gonna be thinking about. The first teeth erupt between about four and seven months, but there's a lot of variation. Sometimes I see even seven and eight month old babies who haven't had their first teeth. It will happen. The bottom two are the first to erupt, followed by the top two. Now, if your baby shows some discomfort, the things that you can do to help are to gently massage the gum where the teeth are coming in. Just use your finger, just a clean finger, and just rub on that area. You can use a teething ring, but we have found that the frozen teething rings can cause more problems than they're worth. So just a, a firm rubber teething ring. Most of the time we don't need pain medication for teething. Uh, it's, like I said, a natural process. You're gonna see a little irritability sometimes, some increased drooling, which is just a normal process, and a low-grade fever. Uh, it shouldn't be over 99 to 100. So if your child has a fever over that, it probably isn't teething that you're dealing with. And one thing to remember is that there's currently a sort of a fad to use an amber teething necklace. These haven't been proven to be helpful and they can be harmful because a child can choke on them. So it's best to avoid the amber teething necklaces. So just relax, don't let teething stress you out. It's, as I said, it's a natural process. Just give your child lots of hugs and love and just celebrate this as an early developmental step. Teething time can be challenging. Do either of you two have any go-to recommendations for parents dealing with teething? Something cold and firm to chew on is kind of what we went to for our kids. How about you, Joe? Any good ideas? No, I think that's that's a good good recommendation. Yeah. Um, the front two teeth just kind of pop through without much swelling, but when the molars come in, one question I get is, uh, what's that blue uh, bulge or swelling that can happen over a molar? So uh, that can happen in the back of the gums. So if you see that, that's okay. And that tooth is just erupting through, but the front two, two, two teeth just uh, don't usually cause that much swelling with it. It can be painful, but it's not that much swelling. I always like to recommend a clean washcloth that you get damp and throw in the freezer. I think that's not too messy and, and often can give the kids some relief or even a frozen waffle. If they, you've already introduced some of those things for those older kids, I always find that that can be helpful for parents too. So here's something that often comes up for me. Um, you know, what do you guys think about an association between teething and ear infections? Joe? Um, not, teething is, is something that's hard to define the exact time on and off. So it's, it's, uh, um, not that I see a, a, a strong correlation, um, between teething and, and ear infections. 
I think there's more of a correlation between having a cold or a respiratory infection and then the onset of, of having an ear infection. So something that causes that eustachian tube in the back of the throat to swell more that doesn't allow that eustachian tube to drain. I mean, all kids are always putting stuff in their mouth, but I think they do even more so when they're teething. And of course, everything that they put in their mouth is going to be covered with all sorts of viruses and other things that could in turn cause the cold that then lead to the ear infection. So in that way, there's probably some correlation, but it probably has more to do with their developmental stage and not having been exposed to these viruses before. But truly, the colds are what lead to the ear, to the ear, ear infections, infection. but the teething can sometimes lead to the cold. So in that way, they're kind of connected. Yep, yep. I also think that, um, you know, we underestimate how much mouth and throat pain can cause ear pain. So I'll certainly often see in, in people who are old enough to be able to articulate what they're feeling to tell us what's wrong, uh, complaints of, well, my ear hurts so bad and their ear looks fine. It's just that their throat is so sore that that they have issues. So it's not uncommon to have kids that will pull on their ears and, and have that feeling. So um, we have a question that maybe is a little bit more uh, aimed towards Matt and I than to you, I'm afraid. Uh, an Aberdeen woman is dealing with depression and is looking for advice for ways to boost her mood. Matt, what are you? Boy, I come at that from a lot of different directions. Yes. Um, I think finding something that's enjoyable, uh, whether that be exercise or a hobby or reading, um, and trying to make that a priority in their day, uh, which is sometimes easier said than done uh, with all the things that pull on us, especially in this pandemic era. Um, that would be one first step. I mean, certainly there are medications that can mm -hmm. boost mood. Uh, so I think if you've gone through counseling and you're working on uh, these other aspects and you're still struggling, I think we need to consider medication at some point as well. Um, I think people underestimate the importance of good nutrition and good sleep mm -hmm. for bo boosting mood. Um, I think a lot of us probably undersleep uh, or try to get by with less sleep than we really need. Um, and getting good sleep um, probably does as much as anything to boost our mood. Uh, so those would be a few things that come to mind for me. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. You know, regular exercise is, is a very well-established way to boost moods. Um, I think good nutrition is really important for people that, for all of us, but I think particularly when you're dealing with depression or anxiety, making sure that you're nurturing yourself with, with good nutrition and exercise and enough sleep is really important. I also want to build on what you said about counseling. Um, Counseling is really underutilized, I think, and a lot of counselors are doing uh, telehealth, so you don't have to go there. You can um, see somebody from lots of different places. It makes it a little easier in areas that are underserved for counselors. So uh, if you're not in counseling now, I think that that's definitely something that anyone seriously struggling should be looking at doing. And of course, I believe in medicine. I'm, I use a lot of antidepressant medications in, in my practice. One other thing that I didn't mention is we're heading into winter is probably just getting exposure to light. Yes. And people uh, could, could do well with getting outdoors, even if it's for just a short walk in the bright daylight uh, during the winter months when we have so much darkness that really does start to affect mood for Absolutely. many of us. Absolutely. And I think that um, light therapy, which is not just, you know, sitting here under under TV lights or uh, 
you know, the light from your computer, but there is actually a role for people who have seasonal affective disorder, winter-associated low moods, uh, to be treated with bright light therapy. So definitely something to talk to your doctor about, not something that I would recommend you just go out and buy on Amazon without talking to your doctor first. So um, do you have any tips, Joe, any thinking about your older kids, any, anything in particular that you found to be helpful for them with their moods? You've touched upon many of the things, and then in the adolescence, bringing in um, uh, other adults into their circle that also support and can touch base, either that's at school or through the church. Um, so many touch points just to, to uh, be involved and to help uh, pull that, ch that adolescent along, uh, that circle of, of also caring. But it, everything you said, I agree with. Uh, and uh, but uh, bringing that additional uh, adult confidant in. I think that's so important that we, you know, let our children know that they're important too. It it kind of broke my heart recently when I got an email from a teacher that my daughter was not doing well in one of her classes. And when I asked her about it, she looked so sad, and she said, "Well." You know, you and dad have so much going on and I don't want to add to your stress. And, you know, I think as parents, we have this expectation that our child, children will come to us when they need something. And maybe we need to be better at stopping and making time for them and to just sit with them and ask them questions and give them that opportunity. So I think that's a good lesson for even those of us that are supposed to be experts to remember. So here's a good question that kind of builds a little bit on, on what we were talking about a little bit before. Can you talk about ear infections and tubes and surgery and so on? What's the latest information on this issue and particularly about antibiotics? Are they always needed? And what are war tubes and when are they needed? I'm not sure what a war tube is. Did either of you familiar with that term? Boy, that was a new one to me as well. I didn't hear you, Matt. That one, that one is a new one to me as well. This, the yeah, war tube. I don't know that one either. All right. I, I wonder if it's the, the long-acting tubes, the, one, the T tubes, sort of the, that, tubes. The, the ones that yeah. are not designed to fall out in, in nine months or so. Yeah, so, that's what I would think. Yeah, we're, we're guessing, so we don't know what no t <laughs> war, war tubes are. So, um, Joe, what do, you, what do you think of what's the latest on, on ear infections and treating ear infections? The most frequent age that I see ear infections would be that um, infancy to about two years, three years of age. And as they grow, thankfully, uh, station tube uh, gets a little bigger and they get less ear infections. But that's, that's a common question in my practice is, is this an ear infection that go with it? They're just sleeping miserably. And that'd be a, a good clue, a cold plus uh, very poor sleep at night is, is a good idea to think about it. Treatment, um, you know, one is making the accurate diagnosis, getting a good look at that ear and making sure that it is truly an ear infection because the kiddo can be quite mad in my office or just in anybody's office and, and, uh, and it can look, look inflamed and, and be a tough look at. So a good diagnosis that it is truly an ear infection. And then 
after that, it's a conversation about antibiotics and, and is it appropriate? So some of the younger infants and uh, younger kids will, will more, uh, the recommendation is to, to go ahead and, and use antibiotics. Um, the older they get, you know, two and above, uh, that's more of a conversation that we can have that, is this some, a spot where we don't need antibiotics or can we do watchful waiting? And these are the clues to watch for. So no, not every ear infection, um, even if, you know, if I see an ear that, that doesn't look classic ear infection, I'll say, let's watch and see how, how things are going. But still antibiotics are, are used to treat. It, is, uh, it can be a bacterial infection in there. Even the bacterial infections, I mean, there's somewhere in that neighborhood of 70% that would clear if they weren't treated. So we sort of reinforce parents' idea that, oh, they needed antibiotics when we give them antibiotics, when if we would have just watched and waited a little bit in a lot of patients, we would have found that a little bit of ibuprofen or Tylenol in some time will clear a good majority. But I agree with Joe. I think under age one, you're pretty much going to treat all of the ear infections. Over age two, I think you can certainly do a lot more watchful waiting. Kind of between one and two, it's a little bit more of a judgment call, um, but I tend to treat when I have a fever with the infection or both ears are infected or they've sort of had a pattern of recurrent infections. I think it's really important to point out that not giving an antibiotic doesn't mean doing nothing. You really need to be doing that Tylenol and that Motrin. And I, I remember getting an ear infection as an adult, and the only reason I didn't end up in the ER on that Christmas Eve was I couldn't go to my own ear, my own ER with an ear infection. I just couldn't do it. But I, I would have if I had not been at home where I wouldn't ever see that ER doctor again because it hurt so much. So. But be generous with the Tylenol and the Motrin. Don't give them more than they should have for their weight, but don't be stingy with the Tylenol and Motrin. Back to the tubes question, I like to hear Joe's viewpoint, but I think somewhere in the neighborhood of three infections in six months, four or five in a year, that's when you have to at least start thinking about tubes or an infection that's taken two or three courses of antibiotics to clear. Those are the patients that probably need to think about tubes in order to avoid the recurrent dosing of antibiotics. And each, you know, and then you take the child, what time of year is it we're hitting into, you know, if we're going into spring and our, if we are just starting into winter and we already got um, three year infections. Um, and then also the age of the child, are we in our second winter and maybe we're, we're gonna be old enough that if we uh, wait a little bit longer, we're gonna have less chance for, you know, we're, we're finally growing out of that infection. age where we see it as frequently. It so that's a conversation to have with the parent. It's like, oh, this is this is what I'm thinking. What then? Then discuss it. it. Tubes are definitely a frequent topic of conversation in all of our offices. I think so. The USD Scottish Rite Speech, Language, and Hearing Clinic offers evaluation, treatment, and consultation services for children and adults with speech, language, hearing, and related communication needs. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt smoke with clinical director Jane Heinemeyer about their services offered. Our main theme really is speech and language services to children. So we serve kids birth to 21 um, and we provide traditional speech and language services. So that means screenings, evaluations, therapy, um, 
big part of our program also are evaluations to identify dyslexia. And then we provide outreach and um, services in the communities to people who need them. We work with kids who might have um, some type of disability that would make them more prone to have trouble communicating, like maybe they have Down syndrome or hearing loss, you know, something like that, or autism. Um, also, we have kids that we see that really don't have any um, disability per se, but communication hasn't really developed as you would hope it would. The whole Sioux Empire just keeps growing and growing, and Sioux Falls keeps growing and growing. And there are services available already, like through the public schools, or through the hospitals, and through other private practitioners for speech and language as services. Um, but there's a lot of kids who kind of fall through the cracks, where maybe they don't quite qualify for services, um, but they still need it. You know, but maybe their deficit isn't quite uh, as severe as would need to be a qualified. Or um, maybe they're middle school, high school kids, and they don't want to receive services at um, school. They prefer to go privately. Um, or maybe they're somebody who just needs a lot more. Our assessments are really a pretty comprehensive evaluation. And for we work with kids, you know, kindergarten, first grade. Those are shorter, of course, because those kids have um, shorter attention spans, and they um, that what they're expected to know isn't as extensive as it is for a high school student or a young college kid. Um, but we look at those areas that I was mentioning, like phonological awareness. Um, can you rhyme? Can you break words apart? How fast can you say the ABCs? Do you know the letters? Um, but you also look at oral language, which in speech pathology lingo is basically um, what you understand and how you express yourself your receptive and your expressive language. And then you look at written language, which is reading and writing. And can you copy? And what's your spelling like? And what's your handwriting like? And how fast can you read? And um, a full dyslexia evaluation will last um, about two and a half hours. So Matt, how might a parent know that, that their child could benefit from screening services like through Scottish Rite? Well, I think if they um, are hearing from teachers or maybe preschool teachers that they just don't seem to be catching on with some letters or their, their language development is delayed, we have to start looking at reasons why. First thing I think about is are they hearing properly? Um, if we've sort of ruled that out and they're hearing properly, then is it a processing issue? And we start to think about the ways that language is processed and the kids are starting to struggle. Those are the kids that I think would benefit from, from screening at Scottish Rite. Excellent. Anything to add there, Joe? I wish we could clone them. They are a good service. Uh, um, it is. It's a a wonderful service to have, and and uh, I appreciate what they do down there. We have another a few more questions here, which is wonderful. So keep them coming, people. We'll get to as many as we can. A Chelsea woman experienced chronic ear infections as a child, and afterwards she experienced loss of taste and smell. That's got to be kind of a scary thing to know right now. Is there a medical correlation between the two occurrences? Matt, what are your thoughts? I would say certainly with taste, just based on where the nerve that goes to the tongue that 
allows us to taste goes through and near the middle ear. I could see where there could be some chronic issues there with uh, an inflammation in the ear that affects that nerve on a long-term basis. Smells a little different, um, different nerve, different location. Chronic sinus issues can lead to smell issues, but I don't know that the ear infection, at least anatomically, I can't tie the two together there. Any thoughts on that, Joe? No, that, I would, I agree that the, the smell nerve is a little bit different location, so I would have a, a little more challenge putting that in the taste can be on the same nerve. The, the way I would put it together is that some of the things that predispose you to ear infections can predispose to those kinds of problems too, like allergy, allergy issues. If you can't smell very well, you don't taste as well as you used to. So um, there could very well be a connection with that. I would say if this individual is well past her ear infection years and is still having issues, if she hasn't gone in to see an ear, nose, and throat doctor to get things checked out, it's probably worth doing. I agree. So, This is a good question, I think very relevant um, to the day. Uh, what do experts think about our youth being involved with contact sports during the pandemic? Is it safe for our youth to be involved in soccer and football without a mask or social distancing? <laughs> Joel, I'm let you take this one. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Matt. That's the that's the big question, and and how is that? Uh, and we we are testing that theory right now, and with our with our sports, and and you hear about the different schools that have have increased cases. In general, with with activities, uh, supportive of going back to school and and involving that. It, the, the question comes with the more contact and the more close exposure. How do you protect the kids that best that you can? And, uh, you know, the work I've seen with, with coaches and school administrators are putting a lot of uh, thought and effort into that and trying to figure out the best way to protect. Uh, we all want what's best for the, for the kids and for the health that way. But at, at this point, um, the, the amount of, of uh, school involvement and being in the school system, I think that's important. But, uh, uh, at, at this time, I think the, the uh, full verdict is still out on, on, on uh, contact sports. I, I am, I, I, I support it with going forward, but as with probably both of you and, and the, all of the state of South Dakota watching how it goes and, and in, in regards holding our breath, you know, praying for the best. I think the outdoor sports, um, something I'm thinking of like golf or even cross country where those athletes can stay separated. I, there I don't know that a mask would be much helpful over just being outdoors. It's going to be more difficult when you get even to football, uh, but there again you're outdoors so that helps. But sports like wrestling or things mm -hmm. like that where the contact is just part of the sport and you're going to be so close to each other. If there's a way to incorporate masks into that, there might be a way to keep that sport going and, and decrease the chance that those athletes are transmitting the virus, but um, there's no easy answer. There's, there's really not an easy answer. I think, you know, when we look at where do your risks go up, it's within six feet for more than 15 minutes, and 
you know, everybody's got to decide their own risk tolerance, their own tolerance with the unknown, but they are certainly risky situations, yeah. especially as you say, some of those indoor sports with closer contact. But sports in general, physical activity in general, that's deeper breaths, more forceful breaths, um, that's a higher risk situation mm -hmm. for transmission. So it's a, whether we like the answer or not, we need to recognize the truth of it. So. Um, this is, a, I think, an extremely important question. Please discuss what one should do if they feel there may be abuse or neglect going on in a relative's home. <laughs> That's hard, isn't it? Yeah. It's really hard. I mean, I think when I, when I have a patient or a family where I have concerns that way, I always think about the you know, what is best for the child. If you put the child first, then the decision starts to get a little bit easier. Um, and I think you want to do what's best for that child. And if you have concerns about uh, a child in a home, you need to do something to, to involve others to investigate that or look into that. So for us in the medical field, we have the child protection services that can go do home checks. Um, but I think there's, if you put the child first in your decision, I think that makes it easier. Um, and we as physicians are mandatory reporters. Mm -hmm. If we're suspecting that there is abuse or neglect in a home, we are legally obligated to, to make that phone call to Child Protection Services. Joe, do you have anything to add to what Matt had to say? You know, if it's a if personal account from a, a relative, um, they can make a phone call themselves if they are concerned. Uh, there is an intake worker that can take a phone call and help walk through that. So um, making that initial call, if, you're, if your gut feels that something's not right, um, that's, a, that's an appropriate phone call to make. It, and they're right, if they come into our office, then that would be a phone call that we would also uh, uh, make um, if we, we felt that way. But if it's a direct from a relative, um, uh, that, that option is available. Yeah. yeah. Relatives can call Child Protection Services too, and, and families don't necessarily know where that phone call came from, so I think that's an important thing to remember. We're getting real close on time here. I have, uh, we'll get a quick question here. Uh, Joe, do children need to take multivitamins? Most of the time, if they're an infant, um, if they're a breastfed infant, we're out there on vitamin D. And then I, around six months, I'm triaging how much iron that breastfed baby is getting. So there might be some additional iron that I may place at that point. Now, an average right. two, three, four-year-old, do, do they need to be on a multivitamin? If overall the diet is good and doing well, not necessarily. All right. But, so yep. That's a... a, a important question that we didn't quite get our full answer to, but um, for the answer to tonight's Prairie Dot quiz question, true or false, co-sleeping, having the child share the parent's bed, has been going on for centuries and is the safest way for infants to sleep. And the answer is false. Co-sleeping is not endorsed by the American Academy of Pediatrics. This decision is based on research showing that bed sharing with babies results in a higher risk of SIDS. Room sharing is considered a safer alternative. And the winner of the quiz question is Jeanette Clendening of Esmond, South Dakota. Thanks, Jeanette. We'll be right back 
after this. Hi, I'm Ken Bartholomew. I'm a doctor from Pierre, South Dakota. I grew up in Lemon and practiced in Falcon first and then moved up here and I've been in practice 42 years. Well, I've had one cancer surgery and I have another one coming up in October. So as part of my rehab, I will challenge viewers to donate to the uh, prairiedoc.org for every mile that I do of the Missouri River from the North Dakota border to the Nebraska border, 411 miles. This would be so overwhelming if people would support this and help support the Prairie Doc. Donate 10, 25, 50, even 100 pennies per mile as I kayak the Missouri River from the North Dakota border to the Nebraska border. To pledge to Dr. Bartholomew's challenge, go to prairiedoc.org, click on donate, and give what you can to support the Prairie Doc programs. Thank you. Early in the pandemic, I had occasion to page through photo albums my mother assembled during my childhood. Some of those happy images chilled my physician heart. There I was, two months old, sleeping peacefully on my stomach in the middle of a sheepskin rug. There I am, seven years later, seated with my siblings on lawn chairs in the bed of the pickup truck as my parents drove us home. We navigated that 15-mile trip multiple times a week for months. There I am, age 12, grinning from my perch atop a wagon load of corn. On the way home from the co-op, I would ride standing on the wagon hitch while my siblings sat on the fenders. Bear in mind, my parents seemed especially safety conscious for the time, as evidenced by snapshots of us buckled into our primitive car seats. And when sunscreen was introduced, I remember my classmates basking in baby oil while I was slathering on the SPF 4. As the saying goes, when we know better, we can do better. And that philosophy should apply to us all throughout our lives. During my years in medical school, we taught parents to lay their babies down for sleep on their backs or their sides. Now we know better. Back sleeping on a firm mattress with a taut fitted sheet and no blankets or teddy bears presents the lowest risk of SIDS. And research continues. Early in my career, we recommended that children not be allowed to eat peanut products until at least age two to reduce allergy risk. Now we know better. Early introduction to small amounts of peanut butter and other highly allergenic foods is the preferred strategy for most children. Still, research continues. The history of medicine and of science is one of constant research and evolution. Some things we once thought we knew did not hold up under further objective study. It is critically important that we challenge and examine our options and reevaluate the way we have always done things. We must expect adjustments and be willing to change when healthier alternatives are revealed. Obviously, I survived the dangerous situations of my childhood. However, too many children do not. We can never eliminate all risk, but we can and must 
continue to invest in the scientific process using the best available data to determine the most effective solutions, even to old questions. Big thank you to our guests, Joe and Matt, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about how to best care for children. If you would like more information about tonight's program or to see and hear additional episodes, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc on Call, wherever you get your podcasts. The entire staff is on call with the Prairie Doc, takes pride in being able to deliver honest, science-based medical information to you, our home audience. If you would like to join us in that journey with a financial tax-deductible donation, please send it to the Healing Words Foundation, Post Office Box 752, Brookings, South Dakota, 57006. If you're interested, you may direct your donation to Dr. Bartholomew's Generous Kayak Challenge. That does it for tonight from all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Is that pain just normal wear and tear? Does it involve more than one joint or is it on both sides of your body? This could be warning signs of something worse. Let's talk about rheumatology next time On Call with the Prairie Doc. For nearly 20 years, the Prairie Doc programs have provided health care information in our state and across the region. Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer May of Rapid City, and I serve as a board member on the Healing Words Foundation, which provides the funding for the Prairie Doc programs. Each week, our Prairie Doc and other medical professionals volunteer many hours to share science-based truth on health care, on public television, on the radio, in our newspapers, and online. And best of all, everyone has free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc Library. I ask you to make a donation. Please help us continue this important work. Go to prairiedoc.org and make a donation today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, Fishback Financial Corporation, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Black Hills Medical Society, 
Brookings Madison Flanger District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialists, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.